Hello friends and thanks for being here. Today we're taking a look at the new Titleist Concept irons and we're chatting with Harry about personal launch monitor testing and we're also welcoming a special guest to get his opinion on the distance problem. This is episode number 59 of No Putts Given. Let's get it. 59. Right? As always, we have Harry, Chris, and Tony here to discuss all things golf this week. Um, guys, how are we doing? Anything new? I'm still sticking with the uh, lemon lemon lime. I know it's maybe been a week since we've uh, uh, looked at the CBD world, but Kenibi, uh lemon lime, sleep like a baby. Nice. weren't you uh, weren't you going to send me some of that? What, did, what happened? Yep. Yep, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I I looked up. Uh, I tried to look up your address again. They said not a real city. Yeah. <laughs> so so this Gansra, they're like uh, postal uh, code not not yeah, found. Just, so it's um, amazing because of Harry Arnett, I no longer get packages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's jump right into it. Tony, um, Title has put out their new concept irons this week. Can you give us a quick breakdown of what you saw um, in the first look, but also. Are they really five hundred dollars a pop? It's a concept, yeah. So if you if you <laughs> want something that is a concept only, um, yeah, you got to pay five hundred a pop, and it it kind of stems from the idea of concept cars, right? If you're familiar with that, like you go to a car show and you, you see these things that are essentially something nobody's going to make anytime soon, or maybe never. With golf clubs, it's sort of yeah, we're we're actually going to take this wild technology and make it, um, make something out of it, and so. You know, I, I saw a comment on Twitter. It's like, why are they $500? And I'm like, well, you know, let, let me read my article to you. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, it, it basically comes down to more than anything else, the face material. So we, we kind of joked about this with the with the new drivers, right? They're using a, a super secret face material. They're trying to get a patent on it like they are with the with the stuff they're using in the driver. And it's, the whole idea is it's, it's a faster, more responsive material, but the trade-off is it's way more expensive than, than a typical steel would be. And you have to buy it in bulk. So you can't buy just a little, you've got to, you got to buy a lot. Um, and so the irons cost a lot. And from a development standpoint, we've talked about this before, right? The, the golf industry works on price points. And so when a new product comes out, the manufacturer is like, all right, I, I need a new iron and I can't sell it for a penny more than $1,300, for example. And so with something like a concept or, you know, PXG told the same story when they first came out, it's like, we're, we're going to take these price constraints off and we're just going to say, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to make the best iron we can. We're going to explore exotic materials. We're, we're going to try new things, new concepts, and, and we're not going to be constrained by the price. And if it works out that it that costs $500 an iron, that's what it costs. So be it. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're going to sell plenty of them. Chris, what do you think about a $500 concept iron? I think it's awesome because it No, absolutely... you're, you have to be mad. You have oh, yeah, to be sorry. mad. I hate expensive. It, 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 it takes so little to make golfers absolutely lose their minds. Like, it's so easy to do. You say, That's oh, true. it's a $1,000 rain suit. Oh, it's a $500 set of iron. And, and people forget to think, right? They, they go, oh, 
okay, I'm not going to read the article and actually see why that's the case or try to maybe understand the context around it. I'm just going to look and say, man, $500 for, for a single golf club is, is the single most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. How are you, you know, how dare you do that? You're supposed to be growing the game, right? People start putting uh, these preconceived notions of what a, a golf company is supposed to do or has to do or has some moral imperative to do. And that's not at all the case. What I love about it is two things. One, it pushes boundaries, right? From a developmental standpoint, you want to see these things start to trickle down where Titleist had said, hey, you know, eventually the idea is that we're going to see these in some mainline offerings. And we're starting to see that with, I think Tony mentioned, uh, you know, AP3 series or T300, something like that in the article, as well as uh, some of the crown face materials in the new TSI drivers uh, that are due out here. I want to say what, end of October, middle October, something like that. Ish, yeah. Ish. Yeah. You'll be hearing about them mid-October. Yeah, and in, in the final point to that is more expensive options don't preclude the existence of less expensive options. So if you don't want, you don't have to buy it. If you don't want to spend five hundred dollars on a, a single simple club, solution coming right here. Simple solution. What is it? You might want to spend one hundred and fifty on something else. Go buy a set of Titleist T two hundreds. Go buy a set of uh, you know new Mizuno. The JPX stuff's going to be. Fantastic. I even think the JPX hot metal stuff's 125 bucks a stick. That's like 25% of what one concept iron costs you. So stop Sub complaining. 70, a set a set will run a you set. about five hundred dollars. So yes. again, like you said, the, the available of a premium off offering does not preclude you buying something less expensive. <laughs> yes, I have a new t-shirt. It says stop complaining, start thinking. It's like for the love. You know, it's not <laughs> so. That's where I'm at on. It gets me a little fired up, but just Harry, leave. are you thinking or are you complaining? Which one? Where are you? Um, I would be thinking. I'm thinking. <laughs> Harry, are, Harry's are, thinking about complaining. He's are like, you sure? I am thinking about complaining. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, is 500 bucks a lot for a club? Yes. Do you have to buy it? No. Will it improve your game by? by buying these $500 clubs alone? Maybe not, but you have the option to not press purchase. Now I'm interested to see if these are actually gonna perform, uh, if we ever, ever get them and do a test on them to see if this exotic materials and everything that goes into it will perform better, uh, a substantial amount better than a regular set of irons, that's to be determined. If I'm going off of looks, well, these are badass again. Titleist come out of a badass driver <laughs> and have come out of some badass irons and I would purchase just off the look of it. And I know that doesn't, that doesn't matter about performance, but I would do it. That'll be me. <laughs> I am looking them right now. And again, I'm thinking Star Wars, like I did with the T300, yeah. T200, T21. I am looking at Star Wars. Like, I just see a Falcon in there and boom. Millennium Falcon. You see the Millennium, the Millennium Falcon. Falcon. Yeah. It is, it is well, money. Harry, we're going to move on from this topic. <laughs> no. <laughs> but we're going into your world. You've been working for the last ooh, number of weeks on testing personal launch monitors. And today is finally the day that we have the answer. So can you give us the breakdown? Who do we go to if we want a personal launch monitor? That's such a hard question. 
<laughs> but do do any of these uh, personal launch monitors cost five hundred dollars? Because like. I get outraged at five hundred dollars. That's my yeah. For anything, anything above, I don't care what it is. I get, I mean, uh, here's the answer to the the question: is yes, we have some some winners that are good and good enough potentially, depending on what your preference is. Now we have models that only offer three matrix, um, which is the clubhead speed, ball speed, and carry, which are easier to determine and then we have models like a skytrack that offer a multitude of matrix including spin rate but here's the thing spin rate is incredibly difficult to get accurate it is in, it's incredibly difficult so when you read the article you're going to see some really good charts but you're going to see some really big outliers in the spin rates for those models that offer it you're also going to see carry distance off by five to 10 yards in some cases. In some cases it's 30. I don't, if it's my opinion and I'm trying to get my bag set for when I go play a tournament, your bag mapping, you're trying to get your gapping correctly. You have to go to a GC quad, a, a track man or a flight scope. Uh, one of the, the more expensive flight scopes. Uh, models purely because that way you you're gonna dial in your game more if you're just having fun you might want these you might want to see your your swing like a rap soda is great for those three matrix plus it gives you some features where you can see your swing you can see the ball track you can uh, you can dive into the data a little bit more and it's fun to watch and there's some other ones like the Miva plus that do exactly the same thing so it's really up to your preference Okay, but if I am buying a personal launch monitor today, I don't want to spend a fortune. What am I buying? Again, what are you? What is your? No, 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 no. What is your preference? What is your preference? That is the. Who came, Who is number one? Who did you rank number one? We rank. I ranked Rapsodo number one based on data and okay. everything else, followed by the Flightscope Mevo Plus, followed by Skytrack. All right. Chris, what do you th- what do you think of those rankings? I think it's uh, you know probably pretty fair. Again, I uh, I know that our processes are uh, you know evolving, but I love this space because this isn't the first time we've tested these. Right, we're we're on a second, third generation and iteration, so we've refined those things. So really, uh, you know, you learn something each time you do a test, and a lot of what you learn is: are we asking the right questions? Are we asking them in the right way? to give consumers information that ultimately is helpful for them. And so, um, you know, I, I, I like that. It's it's probably a little-known fact, too, that, that Rapsodo um, has a lot to do with the manufacturing of Skytrack. Um, and you look into some of the history there, so it's not surprising to me that you would have a Skytrack uh, up there as well. What I've seen and, and just experienced on my own um, is that the Rapsodo, uh, the personal launch monitor, is – really, really accurate from just quick testing that I've been able to do GC quad against um, that in terms of the ball speed launch. I don't know, right, that, uh, like you're saying, Harry, that I would use, um, you know, the Rapsodo in place of a GC quad, certainly. But you have to think a, a lot of people that are, you know, using it for those purposes. I'm using it for practice. I'm using it for, um, you know, to record my vi- you know, video, my swing, to record my swing, send that off to my instructor. The Rapsodo has a lot of advantages in that way. It's small. Boom, throw it in your bag. 
you know, those kind of things. And I think the final point is that, um, again, there, there's a cost element, right? You're going to, you're not going to spend $20,000. You're spending $500, right? That's one fortieth or whatever of the cost for something that is, at least from what I've seen, it may not be a hundred percent as accurate and they don't make any claims that it is a hundred percent as accurate, but it's consistently that accurate, right? So if it's 97, 98% accurate, it tends to be 97, 98% accurate, uh, a, a fair chunk of the 80% time. 80% of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Tony, you've said in the past that you think personal launch monitors are about five years away from being mainstream. Harry was saying that this year the testing was difficult because they've improved so much. Do you still think we're five years out? Yeah. At least, like, I, I get the desire for a personal launch monitor. I understand it. I understand why, like, everybody is interested, at least among my Golf Spy readers. I, I struggle to understand why anybody would buy one at $500 knowing, knowing what we know about either, either the inherent accuracy issues, especially around spin rates, and we've talked about this, you're just never going to get an accurate spin measurement with a tiny little Doppler radar thing. So, so I, I struggle from that in terms of you know, what, what is the use case for this? And some, some of these have features that are really cool, like gamification and things like that, which at least make it interesting. But in terms of hey, using a, a personal launch monitor because I want more insight into my game and, and a better understanding of what I need to work on, you don't get that from from carry numbers. You you don't really get that from from ball speed, right? It's it's from a improvement standpoint. It's what is what am I doing with this club head? And so for me, and yes, I'm spoiled by having GC quad and spoiled by by working with TrackMan when I go for fittings at OEMs and things like that. Like that that's the stuff that matters. Is is how am I delivering the club? And then we know that indoors, again, especially around spin rates. The accuracy just just isn't going to be there until you step up and spend something like two thousand on a on a sky track as your minimum barrier to, barrier to entry. And then when I go outside, right, full flight. What again? What is my use case here? Am I am I just banging range balls? Like that's that's not really going to tell you anything insightful because you know it's a range ball. It's not the ball you play time in and time out. And then again, we've Harry mentioned this when I talked to him yesterday. Right, a lot of these the the flight scope stuff in particular wants you to put metal stickers on the ball for your most accurate outdoor measurement. And again, what's your use case, right? Are you going to put a sticker on every one of these balls that you bang down a range? Are you bringing your own balls? Are you are you putting them on range balls and hoping that they show up in your next bucket? I Again, it it would be great if these things were awesome, but I, I haven't seen one that, that is. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> we got the, the Debbie Downer edition of uh, personal launch monitors. <laughs> if they're consistently off by, say, five yards or five miles an hour on each one, you could do the calculations and, make, um, and, and incorporate it into your game. But who wants to do that? Like, you're paying for a model that you want it to do an accurate job. So that's another thing to look at is doing that and and last my last point about it is all of these models when you go to i would say 60 yards and below to do some chipping and pitching that kind of stuff they are not accurate they cannot they just can't do it and it's consistently like 15 yards off now again if you want to consistently do the math fine do the math but i'm not going to be paying 500 bucks for a launch monitor that's not going to tell me consistent 
accurate readings. Especially because you need that thousand dollar rain suit and your five hundred dollar <laughs> concept and that five hundred dollar concept. So. Yeah, yeah, and so, right. yeah. We also want to talk the distance problem on this week's show. Bryson DeChambeau, right? Distance problem on this week's show. Bryson DeChambeau just won the U.S. Open, so of course it's reignited all of the discussion around: Is he hitting the ball too far? And to do so, I'd like to bring in our special guest this week, Dr. Brandon Horvath, and um, Doc. I'm hoping I'm getting this right. You are a turf expert? Yeah, so my specialty is uh, turf grass diseases, um, and I teach at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Okay. All right. So my question around this particular problem this week is, is it because it's Bryson that we have a problem or that there is a problem? What if it was Tiger Woods hitting it this far? Do you think we'd still have a problem? Harry, why don't you start us? No, I don't think we would have a problem purely. I mean, here's the thing is the US Open course at Wingfoot was like gnarly. It was really thick grass. The straightest hitters on tour couldn't hit the fairways. So the fact that Bryson was the leader in fairways hit and the longest, like his ability to hit it long and straight is, is an ability. At the end of the day, the straight, like I said, the straights people did not hit the fairways. Therefore, if you rolled the ball back, those straights hitters are still going to be hitting it in the rough, but instead they're going to be 30 yards back and then hitting, trying to hit four irons out of a, a sand wedge lie. Uh, it, it just doesn't compute. I don't think there's an argument after the US Open. Doc, what do you think? Is it just because it's Bryson? I think Bryson's a bit of a lightning rod, mostly because of the way he approaches the game. Um, but I think, you know, to Harry's point, you know, the rule book doesn't say that there has to be fairways, right? So think of the most extreme situation of all five-inch rough. What would be the most advantageous thing to do on the golf course if it was all five-inch rough? It would be to hit it as far as humanly possible. Whether it goes down the middle or sideways doesn't matter. It would be a, hit it as far as humanly possible so you can get as small a club on it as possible to approach the green. And that's what Bryson did. And if it was Tiger, everybody would think it was the most amazing thing ever. Um, and might mention, well, it'd be nice if he hit it straighter, but it would, it would not be the lightning rod that it's been with Bryson. Tony, what do you think? Do you think if it were Tiger Woods, anyone would even be making a, a blip about this particular instance here yeah i think so i mean if you go back right the this isn't a brand new conversation the usga has been talking about this for years and i mean there's a reason why they put limits on clubs when they did the ct limit so you know i, I think for a while the usga has believed there's a distance problem and has you know i've i've long since believed that they've kind of cherry picked the data to make that point i think brandon's right i think bryson accentuates it because he is such a polarizing figure you know, certainly with, with what Bryson has done lately, bulking up and just just cranking the ball out there in ways that you know people didn't think was, was possible or definitely not reasonable. I, I think that's, yeah, Brandon said reignited everything and pushed it to the forefront probably more so than it's ever been. You know, if this were Ricky Fowler, there's going to be a different dynamic to the conversation because you probably give Ricky more latitude uh, with certain things because – how, how do you criticize a guy that is that good with his fans and that nice and that, um, you know, accessible and approachable as opposed to you take a guy like Bryson, right, that yells at cameramen for uh, potentially damaging his brand. Um, you know, some of these 
kind of bizarre in the moment things where, you know, whether whether that's, yeah, that's just his personality, who he is, and, and maybe he is a, a bit misunderstood or, or whatever the case is, but you can't ignore those dynamics within a conversation, right? And I compare it a little bit to what if it were a, a more or less an unknown player, like you've seen over the last couple of years, um, a guy like a Scott Stallings. He came out on tour and he was admittedly, and I, and again, I have a soft spot for guys like this, a little bit pudgy, maybe a little bit, uh, <laughs> you know, he filling out the shirt the way that I, I understand how to fill it out. And um, he's like transformed <laughs> his body. I, I would argue what he's done athletically is just as, if not more impressive than what Bryson's done. And so if you, if you had a guy like that, that was bombing the ball where there really isn't necessarily a lot of context to the name, how would people respond? Would they be more willing to give him some latitude? Um, but I think Tony's right. It's a conversation that's evolving. Uh, it, it's a conversation we're going to have anyway. Um, it's a slow-moving conversation, but I think because it's Bryson, it puts a, um, you know, a different level of caffeine into it. Do you think that he's changing the way that golf will be played forever in the future? Do you think he has that sort of capability? Brandon, why don't you start us off? What do you think? I think I think he's... Uh... He, he's a little little hyperbolic on like when he states it like I'm changing the game kind of thing. That's a little 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 too full uh, with the one length clubs and all that kind of stuff. There's no question that those have some merit and some op, you know some opportunities for people that need the you know or like the the one length strategy. But um, I think the the biggest thing that he's showing is that if you spend time really learning how top level players play the game. Uh, you can use it to uh, improve yourself, and and that changes the game in and of itself. Not unlike what Tiger did. You know, I'm not comparing Bryson to Tiger by any stretch, but you know, <laughs> Tiger, Tiger changed the game with how he played, and and these these guys that are on the tour now are the product of what Tiger did. And in 25 years, we're going to see a group of players out here that are thinking in ways that are very similar to the ways that Bryson thinks and analyzing the math behind the game and, and what the numbers tell them in addition to uh, how they approach playing different shots. Tony, what do you think? Is he changing golf forever? Yes. I mean, well, in, in some sense, yes. In, in another sense, no, I guess. How's that for Very a, definitive to like, not so, so definitive. Yeah, no, definitive I, and then wishy-washy. Maybe. I know. So I, I think Brandon's right. Like the, the, the one-length stuff, I don't, I don't think you're going to see a mass movement towards one-length clubs. But I think the, the distance thing and, and not just the fact that more distance is good, right? Longer has always been better, and there's there's plenty of data to show that, right? Distance is a key component to scoring well, even if we didn't realize how important it was maybe as much as we do now. So I think now that his competitors see what is on the table and what can be gained relatively quickly, like that's the amazing thing. This wasn't like three years of rigorous training. Like Bryson went, what was it, to Colorado for a few weeks and, and came back absolutely bombing the ball. And so I think, I think guys are going to look at that and go, yeah, I should, I should probably do this as well. The other component of what he's doing, and again, not unique to Bryson is the math, you know, is Scott Fawcett system. We've talked about from time to time. It, it's math and, and understanding golf as a game of probabilities more than anything else. And so I think, I think you're going to see more guys come around to the fact that it, it's not necessarily about, 
working the ball and, and, you know, playing for angles and things like that. It's about, Hey, what is, what is the right play here based on the math and the math alone? And so I think you're going to see more of that as well, not directly related to, to Bryson, but as a movement overall. Harry, you've worked on adopting some of Bryson's strategies, right? Did they work for you? Are you still using them or have you gone back to your typical game? Well, I hurt my back, so I, <laughs> I couldn't do it anymore. Um, I mean, the amount of torque that he, he puts on his body is uh, it's crazy amount. So I would need to hit the gym and actually prepare my body before I even can focus on doing that. Uh, but when I did do it, I could do it maybe 10 shots in practice and then I was out. I couldn't do it anymore. But I did see a, a lot more gain in yardage. With regards to is he changing the game, I think yes. I agree with everyone's points. Is he's He is the anomaly and he is the one that is pushing the boundaries no matter if it's driving, putting, uh, whatever, you, you, whatever you want to say, he's the one that is pushing the envelope. Uh, some like interesting stats. He wasn't the longest average guy in the U.S. Open for driving distance. Dustin Johnson was. He was thir- he was three thirty three off the tee for Dustin Johnson, and Bryson, on average, was three twenty five. Uh, Bryson was seventh overall in driving distance at the U.S. Open. It's not just a Bryson thing. And when Dustin Johnson was hitting it further, you didn't hear that much of him hey, we need to roll the ball back because he's hitting it 330 yards. Matt Wolf hits it 333 on average at the US Open. John Rahm was 331. Like all of these players have been hitting it longer than ever before, but there hasn't really been a mention in it until Bryson came back looking like the Hulk and then bam, we need to roll the ball back because of this one guy who bulked up like 40 pounds or whatever it was. Well, Brandon, we don't want to let you go without digging into your expertise just a little bit. Chris, I'm going to let you take the reins on this because I think there's some really interesting things to be learned here. Take it away, Chris. Yeah, so just in, in, in chatting with uh, with Dr. Horvath, the, there's been a lot of talk, right? A lot of talk, a lot of pontification, a lot of debate around this distance stuff what should we actually do? Like that's (laughs) like, we, you know, we just talk, 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 you know, okay, great. And even, you know, Jack said it to the, you know, whatever. It's like, you guys have been studying this for however many decades, you know, damn it, do something about it, you know? So how do you answer that? Um, Well, the first thing that I would say is just going back to Harry's point is like one of the things that I think gets missed with Bryson uh, and all of this stuff is, all of the work that went on behind the scenes with biomechanicists, trainers, et cetera. I mean, you know, they, they make fun of his entourage, but he does have some really smart people in his entourage that are advising him on how to do that stuff more sustainably. And, and to your point, Chris, about what do we do with this? I think the, the biggest issue that I want to see, and I hope, I really, really hope the USDA actually ask for some solid evidence-based, you know, non-biased research on how far the golf ball goes under given situations. Because I think Tony, it was mentioned a little while ago about the distance report. You go through the distance insights report and it's, it's cherry picked. It's, there's data that's uh, set aside for one reason or another, and you can just punch holes in all kinds of places in that distance insight report. From my perspective, 
the biggest question is what are the impacts of agronomic practices on how far, how far the golf ball goes? I mean, the CT limit has been set. The golf ball limits have been set. Those, those are sitting there. And so club manufacturers are constantly tippy-toeing right up to the edge of those lines, but they can't pass them or they won't have a conforming club. And so the thing that's left is the, the, the ground and what happens when the golf ball gets on the ground. Those giant distances that everybody talks about, the 400-yard drives and things, they're still carrying about the same distance that they carried under other conditions. It's what happens once the ball gets on the ground that leads to a lot of these really almost absurd distances. So what are, yeah, I guess, what are some of those specifics? Like, you know, the average golfer can relate to, um, you know, we had talked comparing different generations, lengths, moisture things, and you get down in the, in the weeds really quickly, but just in general, what are we seeing on TV and, and, and what are the pieces of information that we could be getting information around, I guess, or what are the questions we should or could be asking that we're not? I think the, the biggest ones and the easiest low-hanging fruit for, for some of these questions on the distance debate are uh, mowing heights and, and, and soil moisture that leads, you know, that goes into the prepping of these, these courses. Most people don't realize that it, on a tour of, you know, tour course, there's, there's dozens and dozens of volunteers. That course has been prepped and prepared for, in, in, in the cases of the majors, for years, nearly decades to prepare for that, those four days. And the thing that frustrates me is the, you know, our friends on the other side of this debate will, you know, when we bring up soil moisture, they'll always throw out the straw man of, well, nobody wants to play soggy, wet fairways. And I don't think anybody's suggesting soggy, wet fairways. What we're suggesting is they don't need to bounce like a cart path and, (laughs) and they don't need to, to bound down the fairway on a, on a fairway that's mowed at heights that were that were greens heights back in the 70s and and those are the those are the two things that i would like to see a real dive in terms of of good objective research on various soil moistures and mowing heights and what happens when a golf ball that's landing at an optimal landing angle at terminal velocity what that ball does as it rolls out and then look at different spin conditions under that scenario because i suspect that unless you have super high spins the the spin numbers that most players generate even down into the amateur ranks that the the spin isn't going to dramatically change that number here's my take on that and i completely agree with everything is what are the usga afraid of are they afraid of people hitting it further or are they afraid of everyone being 12 to 25 under par in a tournament because if they're afraid of the scoring, look what just happened at the U.S. Open. Everyone was over par apart from one guy who was under par and one guy who was level. So what are they afraid of? Like, what are they trying to accomplish here? And if it is scoring, make it harder, make it tighter, make it softer, make it more relatable to the courses that we play on a day-to-day basis instead of making it absolutely pristine where the, the fairways are rolling at a 14, uh, at like a 10 on the stint meter. Like they're rolling so far. What was that? Is that course down in Texas where it's downhill and you can get caught past the cart paths. It's like 490 yards, but it plays like 320. Brandon, do you have a, 
a sense, right? If and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the the kind of things we we need to look at in terms of of what happens after that ball lands. Quick summary: bounce and roll, right? Yeah. So, do we we have a sense of of how much that aspect of things has changed from you know whether it's ten years ago or twenty years ago to now? Like, how much more bounce? How much more roll are we getting? And you know, on average, what's the 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 fairway height difference, for example, and the rough? Yeah, so, so I, you know, I, this is an area of interest of mine because I'm an avid golfer. So my specialty is diseases on turf grasses, but this is an area that I've been getting into. And so the, the, the ballistics of a golf ball are a very interesting topic for whatever reason to physicists, you know, hashtag Bryson. And, and, the, um, and, and so you look into this physics literature and what you find is that these guys have spent time figuring out how a golf ball bounces and rolls on a putting surface with a certain amount of spin, certain amount of landing angle, and all of these kinds of things. And you see the same thing on fairways. And so I mean, that's one of the big things, right? You see a ball that lands at a certain landing angle. Well, if, if it doesn't really deflect into that soil, it comes off at basically that same angle. And so you've got a ball landing at 37 degrees at whatever speed and it, and it leaves with slightly lower speed, but at about that same angle and then continues to roll down the surface. And then when you've prepared that surface with mowing heights that are, like I said, close to what, what a 19, early 1970s putting surface was, it's not surprising that the golf ball rolls for a while. One of the things that I'd like to see is an exploration of rather than the graduated rough outwards, I'd like to see what would happen if we graduated rough like near to far, right? So uh, if, if out at three, 320 or 350, you had taller rough because they're going to hit a shorter club, so you want to try to affect their ability mm. to put impart spin on the ball going into the green – and somebody that's maybe farther back gets a better rough lie. That's what they did at the Ryder Cup, right? Over mm -hmm. in France, is they knew where the Americans were going to hit it, and the rough was gnarly and deep, and where the Europeans were planning on hitting it, the rough was a little nicer. And and so, you know, those are the... <laughs> thank you, Harry. <laughs> of course. Um, you know, I, I think there's some things that, that could be looked at before we start trying to have manufacturers change the clubs and balls that we all like to use. I, I'd like to see a little bit of an exploration into, well, what are some other things that we can do relatively easily to the playing surface to help reduce some of these impacts? And, and let's face it, most of this is, a, is an issue for the 0.001% the of golfers, right? This is not an issue for all of us. I, I, I would love to hit the ball farther than I do, but you know, I, I swing it, you know, as, as my, as my good friend, Andrew Rice told me, you can have a lot of fun from hundred to 105 miles an hour club head speed with a driver. And that, that carry number is going to be 255 to 265. The golf courses that I play are plenty fun from 6,400 to 6,800 yards. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not outgrowing golf courses and, and that, that's the other straw man that I, it just leaves a very sour taste in my mouth when you hear folks at the U.S. Golf Association say things like, you know, we have a distance problem across the game that, that everyone is hitting the ball too far because that's not the case at all. You mentioned, you know, we, we, we've talked about simple ideas of, you know, we've said grow the grass, right? And, and that's, that's polarizing uh, on its own. 
because of, you know, just, again, when you make a blanket statement, people are going to take it different ways. But maybe give people a sense of when we're talking, we're not talking about taking fairway heights and going from where they are now in creating like 1974 orange shag carpet, right? Like we're not talking about that. We're talking about, you know, fractions of an inch and what type of impact might that have from an agronomical perspective? Right. I mean, that's the, that's the question is, and that's one of the things that we don't have a firm answer on we have I, I i have some ideas about what would happen but you know on tour when you look at the the fact sheets that come out for the the various events that are provided by the golf course superintendents association of america the those fact sheets show mowing heights on fairways down into the uh 0.2 xx inches you know 2. 0.25 0.27 0.21 uh, and the effective mowing height of those mowers is even lower than that, uh, generally speaking. So the the actual height of the grass is approaching two-tenths of an inch on a fairway, where for daily play at most places, you're looking at something that's in the four-tenths to a half an inch of, of uh, mowing height. And back, you know, historically, when you go back, if, if you want to do yourself a you know, have a nice rainy afternoon and spend some time on YouTube, go watch some of the old uh, wide world of golf, uh, shell wide world of golf uh, videos and watch like uh, Sarazen hit out of the middle of the fairway on the old course on 16, where he's got a fairway lie that's easily an inch and, and, and you can barely see his shoe tops, you know? So this idea that that agronomic practices have remained static and firm and fast has always been what we consider firm and fast today is just a, it's a total non sequitur and it does, it's just patently false. It's one of the things that drives me insane about getting into this debate is that, is that the conditions have dramatically changed largely because of the, the folks. And yesterday was thank a super day, you know, Thank your superintendent because the conditions that you are provided on a daily basis today are dramatically better than what was present 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago on a golf course. And the conditions that are provided for the tour players are dramatically better. You know, we, I, went, I got to play Inverness on, on Tuesday, and they have the, the famous Lon Hinkle tree where the USGA came in and planted the tree because they didn't want Lon Hinkle going down the other fairway uh, and cutting the corner on the par five. So they planted like a 35-foot a tree overnight between the second and third <laughs> round of, of the U.S. Open at Inverness. And what was interesting about that is, is, is we, we paused as we were looking at the plaque uh, at the base of the tree and, and all of us, I was playing with three golf course superintendents and all, all four of us asked the question, what would the modern player have done if that happened? Like, can you imagine the loss of like psychological, like control <laughs> that would happen if, if, if a player, like if a, if a tree all of a sudden appeared, I, I mean, <laughs> It, like it's just comical to think about, but it, it's like that's the kind like those guys just played. They're like, ah, oh, well, yeah, I guess there's a tree there now, so I'll have to figure out a different way to do it. And, and go around and, it, over it, under yeah. It it's, it's, you know, and and that's the other thing too is even what it is today, like it's the same playing surface. The lowest score won. Like what? What's you know? If you if you really like to Harry's point, if you if you really care about scoring, just change par. 
Just just make it par <laughs> sixty eight, and then all of a sudden nobody <laughs> shoots under par. <laughs> I, well, and it's 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 cra- again right. The, the whole idea of the sort of the impetus for this this whole debate is the idea that we need to protect par, right? This these these yes. courses are getting obliterated. Guys are shooting, you know. 30 under in some cases. And you look at the the US Open and, and Harry touched upon this as well, but I, I ran the numbers and of the guys who made the cut, the median score for the tournament was plus 15. I mean, if, if that's not protecting par where, you know, the, the best guys in the field are, are essentially averaging 15 strokes over, over par, then, you know, what the hell are you looking for? Right. I, I, I feel like in a lot of ways I'm living a scene out of Moneyball, right? Where where Billy Bean's just sitting there doing this, you know, and when when the guy's talking about, you know, well, he, he's got an ugly girlfriend. What's that mean? Well, it means he has no confidence at the plate. Like, the, you know, that, the stuff that you hear some of the folks on the other side of the debate talk about, like, well, it's not the way the game was intended to be played. No, the game, the, the game is hit the ball into the hole in the fewest strokes possible, period. That's the game. Not, oh, you choose an angle that gives you the best approach or or whatever. And what's happening is these folks are applying math and probability to what is the best way to get my ball into that hole in the fewest strokes possible. And that's it. That's all it is. It's that's a it's a simple basic game. That's all the shepherds were doing. Hey, I bet you I can hit my little you know little leather sack shillelagh. Here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, with my shillelagh down down the uh, down this grass here that our sheep are grazing on into that little uh, rabbit hole down there and fewer strokes than you can. That's it. That's all it is. It's it. Let's not overcomplicate it. Yeah, they didn't take the shillelagh and said, "Hey, I'm going to hit a trap draw." And I'm gonna get the Johnny Miller one groove thin, and uh, uh, certainly it couldn't work and... it like they used to. <laughs> no, I think that I mean that's a lot of fodder. We may we may have to have you back on another time too, because there, there's going to be. I cannot wait to hear some of the comments. I will uh, <laughs> eagerly await. await I don't. The, I don't uh, envy you all. I well, <laughs> that's why we're going to give them your direct email and phone number to make sure that we uh, we uh, get that taken care. Of. But thank you so much for your time and and, and sharing some of us. We we certainly uh, think we know at least a, a decent amount about some golf stuff. But um, it's always fun to dive into areas of expertise and, and to leverage the uh, yeah the the vast amount of information and intelligence and expertise that's out in the industry. Um, to help inform our conversation. So thank you so much for, for your time and spending some time with us. Thanks Absolutely. very much. I appreciate being on. Yep, we certainly thank you. And on that note, we up. No Putts Given is powered by My Golf Spy, the most extensive reviews in golf. Before you buy, My Golf Spy. Nine million readers do it every year. Check us out.